If you have your Bibles, let's go to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at this subject today, the subject of prophecy. Been going through Luke on Sunday mornings. I'm going to just give you our main idea up front. Our main idea, our driving thought of this message is that prophets lead for change and facilitators simply maintain the status quo, right? And the question for you and for me is which one are we? And something that we've seen in the Gospel of Luke is there's an incredible sense of irony. We learned, I believe it was last week, that most Jewish men, their prayer when they got up in the morning, kind of like we teach kids to do, was, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a dog, or a... Y'all listen, man. Yeah, or a woman. Now, that being said, that type of, if we could call it from the 21st century terminology, that twisted form of the Old Testament, which the Bible never taught, we call it today as sexism. What you see in the book, in the Gospel of Luke, is that over and over again, God does incredible things through improbable people. For example, uh, last week in verses, in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, we looked at verses 46 all the way through 55. After Mary came to Elizabeth, and they're both pregnant, Elizabeth with the one who would be John the baptizer, and Mary with Jesus, they got together and they were having that girl time, and after that, Mary just broke forth in song, If we fast-forwarded, or actually rewound a little bit in the first chapter, uh, Zechariah, right, was the old man, okay? Now, guys, it didn't put a figure on that, but he's old. The angel comes to him in the temple, says, Your wife, who is advanced in years, is going to have a son. And he doesn't believe God. And the angel said, because you did not believe God, you're not going to be able to do, somebody help me out, not able to do something for until the child is born. And that was to what? To speak. So we don't know if Zechariah was a talker. All right? Some people are talkers and some people are not. But can you imagine, even for the men of few words, even for the men of few words, can you imagine going over nine months and not being able to say one word. So what you have here in the, in the Gospel of Luke is totally countercultural because the woman believes God and she's able to break forth in song and it was so good it's preserved in the Bible and the dude, the guy, the man, totally goofs up and he can't say anything until the kid's born. That's funny. Some of y'all don't think so. All right. That's funny. That's called irony. So here, here's the stage. We're going to start out in verse 57 and kind of walk through this story. Uh, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. Now, ladies, she is a senior citizen. Her wa- husband says she's advanced in years. The angel basically says she's old. We don't know how old, but can you imagine this? You've got a senior citizen lady, and she comes to give birth. She bore a son. All right? You're at the senior center. Picture this. Playing, what is it, Rook? I'm not sure exactly, you know, poker and everybody's got their derringers, you know, hidden in there, walkers. And so you, you've got this, this scenario, this older lady, and most older people have 
older friends, right? So you can just imagine this group of senior citizens there, like, I hope she's going to make it. And she does. She gives birth to a son. And then this is where it really gets awkward. Notice verse 58, Luke chapter 1. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Let's stop right there for just a moment. Throughout the scripture, for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, Christians, we collide with, if we say we believe the Bible, it collides with our American culture in this sense. Today, people tell you, try to have as few children as you can or none at all because children are burdens, right? Now, let's, let's just say, some people can't have children. Does that mean that God is punishing them? I don't think you can make that case at all. But the society as a whole tells us that kids are something that you shouldn't... I mean, even if you have them, you know, just like maybe name them and and just try to put them in as many programs as you can so they can drive other people crazy. You know what I'm talking about? Like have them and then just farm them out. You know, maybe get them in there and clean them and, you know, dunk them in the tub and then throw them in the bed at night. But don't really, you know, spend a lot of, uh, of quality teaching life, pouring your life into your kids. Throughout the Bible, it says that children's, children are not burdens, but they are blessings. Some of you are like, Jeff, you've never raised teenagers. If you had, I think you would change that to where they are burdens. I, I understand, right? I understand. Some people say, you know, he who hates his brother in his heart is a murderer. But what does that mean when you've got a 16-year-old son? I don't really know how that all that shapes out. But I want something for us to think about something. The way in which we value children is the way in which we value the Word of God. For example, if any of you know a young lady in Franklin County, she can be in Roanoke, she can be anywhere, we can get to her. If she is pregnant out of wedlock, please let us know. All right? That doesn't mean in your Bible study class. You ever been in a Bible study class and it's not like prayer request, it's like gossip time? Any prayer request? Well, there's some people that really need praying in the next class. Let me tell you a prayer request. You're like, that is so gossip. That is so gossip. Not like that, but let us know. And what we want to do, because we don't simply say we are against abortion, we actually love people, all right? Y'all okay? We will love them to the point that we will invest in her financially so that we'll be able to help that baby be born instead of being aborted. Because we believe that life begins, life begins at the very small stages when the embryo and the zygote, even, I mean, conception, we got it? That's life. So if we say that we're pro-life, we've got to put our money where our mouth is. I think that the world is tired of churches and preachers standing up, abortion's wrong, and they don't give a red cent. So we're going to give more than that. We love people. Uh, We're not going to hold that over her head. We believe that Jesus forgives. Amen, church? There's grace and there's forgiveness, and we'll do whatever we can to help out. And uh, notice that 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 was free, all right? That's just giving a little bit of vision right there where we want to want to go. And in verse 59, here's where it gets awkwardly funny. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. The kid's eight days old, and he doesn't have a name. Would that not be somewhat awkward? It, she, I mean, he is crying. The kid does not have a name yet, and this was not common. 
uh, in fact, for the Jews. The Jews would give them the name right after the birth. But there was this thing about an angel, and then dad couldn't talk, and mom is there. Notice what his mother uh, answered in verse 60. She said, no, he shall be called John. Why did she have to say, no, you're not going to name him that? Here's what happened, ladies. You've got all of your other lady friends who are advanced in years, and your neighbors, and they're getting ready to name your kid. Let that soak in. You're a senior citizen lady. You've had the baby. And it's like the whole neighborhood comes. And they're like going to adopt your kid away from you and name the kid. That's weird. Notice what she says. Uh, No. She doesn't go off on them. She doesn't get mad. She doesn't go street. She doesn't pop a cat. She just says, no. She doesn't get catty. She says, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. Now, right here, you see a, a, an embedded reference to that women are stupid. Who's the mom? Elizabeth. Who said that he's going to be named John Elizabeth. What did the neighbors say who were led by men? None of your relatives is called by this name. That is a subtle reference to the thought that women are dumb. And by the way, Jesus treated women differently, church. He did. He gave respect. He gave honor. He treated them with deference. Went in a day in which Roman culture and also Jewish culture was dead and cold to women. Even more so Greek culture. But that's rated PG-13 and up, and we can't get into that right now. It was a rough time to be a woman. In verse 62, and they made signs to his father. So they, 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 they totally bypassed the mom inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And so Zacharias in verse 63 asked for a tablet. And this would have been a little tablet that had wax on top. It was kind of like the Etch-a-Sketch of the first century. You guys remember that? Right? Etch-a-Sketch, good times on the road trip until dad hits a really hard bump. Right? Then he totally destroys the Mona Lisa of the Etch-a-Sketch. Some of you don't have an Etch-a-Sketch. You need to go to Goodwill and find one. It will improve your life. All right? So here we go. He writes on the tablet, and his name, here's what he writes. His name, not will be, but his name is John. So here Dad lays the smack down. And they all wondered. And immediately, here's where it gets funny. His mouth was opened and his tongue loose. Isn't that a cool picture? Like his tongue is kind of like a tied up raging bull. And now it's loosed, all right? And he spoke, and here's what he does. He blesses God. Now, now let's just stop right there for just a second. Who was the one who took away his speech? God. For over nine months, and the first thing he does is he blesses God. Here's a little application that that he realized something that us 21st century Americans don't really realize. Uh, Remember Job? He says the Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord what? Takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But today we get really mad when things are not always hunky-dory, don't we? Throughout Scripture, you see the concept, and if we could grab a hold of this, I, I guarantee, if we could, if we could understand, if we could really grasp this principle that the, the, that the mercy of God is what we don't deserve, but He gives it to us, and that's more. That, that means that when we come to those times of suffering in our lives, have you ever been there? Right, last week, that kind of valley, that we realize that if it were not for the mercy of God, we wouldn't have any life at all. So it's not so much 
God, why did you let these bad things happen? God, why did you take away, and we obviously know here it was his unbelief, why did you take away my gift of speech for nine whole months? My gift, you see. There's nothing that we have in our lives that we can ultimately say that I did this. Even for people who are hard workers, what do they work hard with? Their hands. Well, the mind tells their hands what to do. And I don't know of anybody who could say, put on their resume, bro, I created my own brain. First one to ever do it. I created my own brain. Then from my own brain that I created out of nothing, I created my work ethic. And from my work ethic, I had my work. And that's why I have this, these things in my life. Everything that we have, even our talents and our developed gifts and our work ethic are from the Lord. So he blesses, he blesses God in verse 65. This is funny. And fear came on all their neighbors. All right. You're there and you're a neighbor. You've used to, you're used to Zachariah being silent for over nine months. And all of a sudden he writes something. His name is John. And then he begins to say what we're going to talk about. He would be a little freaked out. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So here's a question people say now. Now in Jeff, in verse 67, it says that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began to prophesy. Uh, what is prophecy? And by the way, good job on all of you for making it past the end of the world back in, in May. You guys remember that? I think that we should just, Ben, do you have Survivor back there? We can just blast the speakers, okay? We've got, I'm just totally kidding. Um, that's for the 80s music fans in the house. Uh, that's something that we hear about all, all the time, right? All the time. Prophecy and prophecies. Uh, this is in your bulletin. You should have received one when you came in. Uh, what is prophecy? There's two aspects to prophecy. Number one is foretelling. That is, if you want to write this in your margin, what God will do, okay? What God will do. For example, a big prophecy is that one day Jesus will return, okay? He will return as king. And that's the time that you will have wanted to have been saved before he comes back. So the first aspect is saying what God will do. Secondly, and this is actually the majority of the prophecies in the Bible. It is forthtelling, proclaiming God's word for the present situation. So if you're taking notes, foretelling is future events. Forthtelling is proclaiming God's word for the present situation. So if foretelling is what God will do, uh, then foretelling is what you should do now. Like John the Baptist, he said, repent, which means to turn back to God. So here, here's kind of, we're going to walk through uh, with the time that we have left, verses 68 through 79. And this is Zechariah's prophecy. It's his proclamation of what God does for his people. The reason why he's so fired up is notice verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. When it speaks of God visiting them in verse 68 for our note takers, it means that God actually came to them. If you're taking notes, Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. This is when Moses and Aaron went to the people who were slaves in Egypt, and all the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had, here it is, 
visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So when God comes and visits, that means God is there primarily to help. Now, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and you guys know that. Uh, sometimes pastors do what's called unexpected visits. Like when you show up at somebody's house and they're not expecting you, all of a sudden you see sometimes blinds are drawn shut. Yeah. And sometimes lights go down. You hear things like, shh, get the Bible out and put it on the coffee table if he makes it through the padlock. Nobody's home. Okay, okay, I get it, I get it. And a lot of times when you're a pastor and you go see people unexpectedly, there's usually one of two thoughts that are going through their mind. The first one is, what did I do that he found out about? Right? It's like, oh no, he's coming to see me for something. And secondly, it's who died. Seriously. Usually when a preacher shows up, it's kind of one of those things people are like, oh, this is going to, I don't know what happened here. I'm a little bit freaked out. I'm not an intimidating guy. If you're intimidated by me, we need to get you some, like just my physical physique, right? We need to get you some anxiety counseling. I'm not an intimidating guy. But what I've seen sometimes is guys who could beat me up with like their pinky, Right? Get intimidated because one thing that I've, I've noticed is, is, is sometimes when we're far away from the Lord, when anything having to do with the Lord, whether that's passing by a church building or whether it's seeing a Bible or seeing a preacher, it's kind of like that sense of I'm not right with God. So if I see kind of like God's representative or God's people, it makes me feel weird good example might be that if you start out on a workout program, let's say you, you start having somebody train you at, at the YMCA or Gold's Gym, and then you quit, you kind of fall off for a while, and you see them in Walmart, you know, you got your, your cart full of, of, can I get a witness, Bluebell ice cream, amen, you've got zingers and bonbons and all that stuff, and your, and your trainer's walking down the aisle in, in the, the, the training workout, you know, outfit, and, and they've got, you know, like granola and, and wheat bran, and you just, you're like, hey, how you doing? It's just, an, it's awkward, right? So what you see right here, he's praising God please hear this, that God actually came and visited his people. And you know what God wants to do in our lives? He wants to come into our lives. And notice verse 68, not just visit to stop by and say, how's it going? But what's the word there? Redeem, or you could say this is the word for ransom his people. Here's what the word means in the original language. To experience or the experience of being liberated from an oppressive situation. Now, Unless we, it's probably anybody in America has never had the experience of being a slave. We just can't, I mean, seriously, you guys read that in Western Civ about societies, even American society, they had slaves. The Greeks and the Romans, they all had slaves. We can't really understand, I don't think, what it means to have no rights. Like if you, if, if, if you die, There's like you and the family dog, mathematical symbol, equal sign. You have no rights. Zero. And in this situation, Zechariah is essentially a Jewish man in Palestine 
under the thumb of the iron fist of Rome. Rome would say, sure, you get Pax Romana, you get Roman peace as long as you behave, but if you don't, we'll come and crucify everybody. Have a nice day. That was Rome. And so he's saying, God, thank you for sending uh, John the baptizer to prepare the way for Jesus so that we can be redeemed. Something I'd like you to write down is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. The Bible says, in him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. If you're here today and you need to be delivered and set free, I just want to tell you that it is Jesus who can save you. Amen, church? And you cannot save yourself. You cannot get better. You cannot stop doing enough wrong and start doing enough right. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that can save any person who comes to him. And notice verse number 69. We see here that God provides a way of salvation. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now this word, this is a really strange picture to us. Say, why would he say... He raised up a horn of salvation. Well, this is a way of symbolizing, symbolizing strength. If you want to write down a reference in the Old Testament, it's 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. This is after David has survived a battle and escaped. Here's what he said. In verse number 1, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song, On the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So you had people trying to kill you with hand weapons. David survives, and here's what he says. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, here it is, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. When you see the reference to the horn of salvation or the horn of deliverance, it means that God is so strong that He can deliver you from the very hand of your enemies. And He's in praise to God. Now notice verse 69 as well. You say, in the house of His servant David. Let me just say a word about the Jews. Um, I know that, that, that we have we know about Jewish people, but I don't know if any of you have ever met a Philistine. Any guys ever met Philistine? Okay, you're like, man, I used to play football, and I think I played against Goliath's brothers. I'm not really sure, though. You know, it, it, was, it was scary. I don't know very many of us who, who have known, uh, personally, a, a person in ancient times whose people group has survived to the present. But do we realize that, that the Hebrew people, the Jews, are an ancient people who still have their language? Have you ever seen Hebrew? It looks like a chicken took more than one shot of Grandpa's Franklin County moonshine cough medicine, cough syrup, and got out a pen and began to write. That's what Hebrew looks like. It's a crazy, Semitic-looking language. But the Jews are still here. You know what this is? This is crazy because what God is saying to Satan and every other ruler in the world who hates God, oh, by the way, just so that everybody knows, I'm going to send my Messiah through the Jewish nation And if that's not specific enough for you, I'll send it through the tribe of Judah. And if that's not specific enough for you, I'll send the Messiah through the line of David so that Satan would know exactly who he needed to kill in order to mess up God's plan. So this really says how powerful God is. Isn't that cool? 
Like five people got it. You guys with me? Y'all okay? All right. Like God is literally saying, Satan, evil rulers, if you want to mess up my plan, if you want to dethrone me from being God, I'm telling you exactly the ethnic line that all you need to do is send soldiers to wipe them out. And then I will have made a mistake because I said I was going to save the world through the line of David. And yes, alas, the line of David is dead. But this just shows us how powerful God is. And that even though you may, people have tried, Hitler has tried, there's still anti-Semitism today, there's no one who will be able to destroy the Jewish people because the word of God says that they still have a place in God's kingdom. And if you know Jewish people, love them to Jesus. Amen? Don't be afraid of them. Befriend them. They need Jesus too. And notice this little phrase, uh, I'm not sure how far we're going to get. For those of you that are, that are um, ADD, we're, we're just going to work through this. All right, if we have to pick it up next week, that, that's going to be fine. When you see the, the, the house of his servant David, we think of King David, don't we? Right? King David who killed Goliath. But remember what David's occupation was before he was a giant killer? Shepherd. You know, it was probably the lowest job in that time. It was a, it was a shepherd. You know what this tells me? That God can raise up a great person out of a very humble home. If you're here, remember we talked about last week about people who have problems in their families. Dr. Johnny Hunt, who we talk about a lot here, he's a great pastor in Atlanta. His dad walked out on him when he was seven years old. Was raised in government housing. He has a, a message called from the pool room to the pulpit. He was a bar fighter, bar hopper, and he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention for two years. And when he gives his message on Sunday, they have translators who translate that into multiple languages around the world. Think about my, uh, my friend Anya in Kazakhstan. She was raised in an atheistic, communistic Russian family. Her family did not believe that God even existed. And then South Korean missionaries who did not even speak Russian went to the USSR and hired... This is, so, this, is, this is like South Korean awesomeness. They hired a Russian translator who knew uh, <laughs> Korean and they began to go to college campuses and simply preach the gospel. Well, she was invited to this English uh, type of, of meeting there where different languages and such. And she heard the gospel and she got saved. She is Russian. She heard the gospel through South Koreans who went to the USSR, the former USSR. And she got saved, went to her house and told her dad. And now he's a pastor. God can transform families. I was at a, a youth camp last summer where a young boy stood up, he was in seventh grade, and he's a, a strong athletic kid, and he began to just break down, talking about how God had delivered his dad from being a drunk. And he said, I don't have to be afraid anymore. I don't have to go stay with my aunt and uncle when my dad's been drinking anymore. He says he gets up on Sunday and he, br- he brings us to church. It's not like mom is in there boot kicking him, you know, multiple times, get out of the bed. Like my dad brings us to church and he says, God's in our family now. This is a tough kid who's just broken at the grace of God. So man, when we read stuff like this, the house of David, you see what transformation God can do in any family. And please don't think that yours is exempt. 
It's the grace of God that can permeate your life. And I think of many of you. Man, we've got a lot of... Man, I love this church. I do. We've got people here who have been faithful for years. We've got some of y'all, man, you're fired up. You, you, you're, you're letting the gospel permeate your life. You're like, well, what about this? You, you see the change of the gospel. I think about the gospel changing your lives, and I just look at this and see what God did in the life of David in the house of David, and he can do the same thing in ours. And it is simply the power of the gospel. Amen? That's what is the power of the gospel to simply open up the lid of your life and let him flow through you and change you. Let me say a quick word to the guys. Guys, a lot of that involves simply us saying, God, I'm wrong and you're right. And when you do that, it's all downhill from there. In verse 70 through 75, we see God fulfilling his word in his time. We see pictures like in verse 70, uh, 74, notice this, um, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. You know the reason why God delivers us? You know the reason why God delivered some of you from fear? From alcoholism, from hatred, from even hold on to your seats, from being a religious traditionalist, y'all okay? From coming in on a Sunday morning, and it, it, the, if nobody comes down to be saved, you could not give a, you could not give a rip. But if a, boy, if a hymnal or a chair is moved, you're all up in arms. Jesus can even save you. Seriously, it's possible. It's possible. And I'll go ahead and move on. Say, Jeff, what does it mean to actually serve God? It means to obey Him. It means to obey Him, to continue to serve. And notice verse 76, and you child, so this is where Zechariah kind of changes from this, this song of praise to God, and he turns to little uh, John the baptizer. He says, you child will be the prophet of the Most High, and notice what he'll do. Notice what prophets do in verse 76. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. In other words, he's saying that you are going to prepare the way of Jesus. Literally, you're going to be a trailblazer, right? Like a person who goes and blazes the trail for Jesus. Do you remember all the things that John the Baptist had opposing him? He had a twisted system of religion that elevated um, like a sense of doing things, like a sense of ritual and liturgy over the actual needs of people. He had, uh, you've got um, also Herod. Remember, by, by the way, do you remember how John the Baptist actually died? Like what actually got him thrown in the slammer? Herod had taken his brother's wife. Wrong. You know what John said? He said, you're wrong. Boom. He's in prison. Then when he's in prison, Herod, the king, has one of his little, <clears throat> this young girl come in and do a dance. Should not have been done. And Herod was so, um, so pleased at that dance that he said, you tell me what you want, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Imagine that. I'll give you half of my bank account. And she goes to her mom. She says, Mom, I can get up to half the kingdom. What do you want? You know what the mom says? This is where the Bible is totally not safe for the family, nor is it rated G. I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. A big plate 
and I want a bloody head that has been severed. That's in the Bible. So you know what Herod does? He beheads John the Baptist. Here's the question that, that I want to ask us today. Are you and I willing to be a trailblazer? Are we willing to take it on the chin if we never really get to see what God has planned? For example, John really never got to see all of the, the, the ministry of Jesus, all the people being raised from you know, the dead multiple times and, and multiple people, rather, and see Jesus on the cross and rise from the dead and the ascension. He never got to see Peter preach on Pentecost where thousands of people got saved. He never got to see any of that. His whole life, in fact, in verse 80, uh, notice what happens here. Uh, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. He was out there eating honey and locusts. He was a guy who denied himself time and time again to simply say, you know what, it doesn't have to be about me. And one of the things I think that we could grab a hold of today is realize that it doesn't have to be about me. Amen? You know, you can't be in any worse slavery than saying it's got to be all about me. May Jesus deliver us from that mentality and be like John the Baptist to be willing to say, you know what, I'm willing to look beyond the suffering and I'm willing to take whatever God has for me. So the question for us is, are we prophets? Are we willing to lead for change or are we simply facilitators? So notice as we bring this to conclusion, verse 76 what prophets do, here are uh, a couple of things that prophets do. Number one, they prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 77, they provide knowledge on how to be forgiven. If you want God to use you, simply say, God, help me prepare the way for people to be saved. Help me love people, help me witness, help me provide knowledge. And finally, here is why prophets do what they do. Verse 78, because God has tender mercy. Verse 79, to give hope to the hopeless. Notice verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of, notice this, the tender mercy of our God. It's the tender mercy of our God. You hear that song, Help Me Make It Through the Night? Right? You see here the tender mercy of God. And God's default is mercy. And notice it references there uh, the sunrise. I think for some people to understand that God is merciful, He is compassionate, He is loving, and even though we experience things that may be difficult, it does not mean that God does not care. And in verse 79, notice the picture here, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That means that He's saying that God is sending salvation through Jesus, prepared by John the baptizer, for those who are so close to death that the shadow of death literally hangs over them. And let me just give you the honest, truthful, but freaky thought of the day. None of us know when we're going to die. Do we? We don't. So the biblical motif here is that we should have an urgency to see people saved. Question the people that you know in your life, do you have an urgency for them to be saved? That's a heart check. Finally, verse 59, excuse me, 79, you see that he's to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
Let me read to you from Psalm 107, beginning in verse 10, and see if you can find yourself in this passage. Some set in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he, speaking of God, bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out. This is awesome. Think of when you were lost. He, speaking of God, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow, here it is, and the shadow of death and broke their chains apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. For He, God, shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Jesus came to guide the peaceless into peace. Remember Nathan Hale, that great American patriot? He said, I regret, he says, um, I regret only that I have one life to give for my country. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, there was no life from that point that needed to be given. It was the perfect and total substitute. It was Jesus making peace with the world. So the question for us today, say, Jeff, now what should I do? If you're here today and you have never received Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, if you're still sitting in darkness, receive him today and be born again and be saved. Say, Jeff, man, I've been saved, bro. I I'm, 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 think I'm following Jesus. What do I need to do? Here's the question. Are you willing to be a prophet and lead in your family, your work, and your church for change that results in people being saved, or are you simply wanting to maintain the status quo? And that is a heart question. Let's pray. As we come to this time of, of commitment, For those here today, you you say, I, I have never been saved. If I died right now, I, have, I, I actually I probably have a good idea of where I would go, and it's not where I want to go. I think I would go to hell. Just in this moment, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right now in your seat, you say, Jesus, save me. Confess your sin. The fact that you are a sinner. Not just what you do. Say, God, I am a sinner. Please save me. Do business with Jesus right now. If 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 he has saved you in this service this week, or even right now, When we begin to sing in just a couple of moments, we're going to ask you to come out of your seat and walk down. And by doing that, you're not saving yourself, and that doesn't earn salvation, but you're saying, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you, and this is my first way to show it. My first way. We ask you to come. And for those who need to be baptized or those who need to join this church, you know that God has led you here. We ask that you would come. And just to say finally a word to those who are, are, are depressed, you've been through a lot, just take this time to say, Lord, would you search my heart? I want to be right with you. If there's anything there that shouldn't be there, just get it right with the Lord. Father, we ask that you would take this time and you would glorify yourself. 
And the ones who need to make commitments would do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're all standing as, as we sing.